Hey everybody, welcome back to the Aries Americans. Hope you are staying safe and healthy. We are coming to you live, almost live, here in the middle of February. So weather is cold. Texas is frozen, which is fascinating to me. But, you know, vaccines are either here or on their way. We are hopefully into safer pastures in terms of our pandemic. But we are still living in this very, very weird, very unfortunate part of our Asian American lived experience where we've had to witness our elders getting beaten, getting slashed and murdered as well. And as unfortunate as those events have been, what I am really empowered by is the mass elevation of our voices of anger and of calls for justice, but also just empowerment and finding our own voice in our own way. And I hope that we come out of this. I genuinely hope that we come out of this with uh, a sense of unity, not just within our own community, but also with our external partners and allies to make sure that we, we don't let this just because certain people are in jail or, you know, whatnot, that we just let it pass. And and so what we are living through is a mass elevation of Asian American voices and in storytelling. Me, what I'm doing here at the Asian Americans and just like media is a part of a larger puzzle of OGs and new people just coming into the game and, and just elevating the whole damn pie and growing the pie and elevating the stage all together. And it's going to take a lot of us to do that. So my guest today is somebody who inspires me so much. She probably doesn't know it, but I'm 37. I'm, I'm not your uh, typical Gen Z demo. I got two little kids of my own. And if you've been listening to us for a while, you know a little bit about my family. But I'm inspired by the next generation because that's who's going to keep us accountable. We were raised differently. We had advantages and privileges that we need to exercise. But to see Cynthia and her team just be unapologetically themselves earlier in their lives and earlier in our career is so, so, so inspiring to me because while we can all of us say that we should have done it earlier, the work that we've done is being manifested into these young folks saying enough is enough, but at earlier points in her career, and I, and I cannot wait. So Cynthia is the founder uh, of AZI Media, which is another Asian American media company. They have podcasts, they have newsletters, they got a big team globally to uplift our voices in, in a very thoughtful and, and media focused way. She is a veteran of the digital media game, even at her youthful career. She has some big heavy hitting names in the world of media on her resume, like Next Shark and Morning Brew. And she is currently um, at Admiraja, uh, connecting culture and community and commerce at a uh, Asian focused multicultural advertising agency. So how's that for an intro, Cynthia? Welcome. Oh, you flatter me, Jerry. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. And uh, you know, I flatter maybe, but I, I think it's true. And I think anybody who's seen you come up with the idea, I remember what or reading I think you posted in all the Asian Facebook groups, so I don't know exactly where I read it, but, uh, you know, it was called something else then, but I was like, hey, we got this really ambitious idea, you know, and to be frank, I, I when I first read, I was like, I think this is insane because mm -hmm. I, you know, I mean, I am all for the elevation of our voices, but I am also for doing that with money in people's pockets, right? Because mm -hmm. What happens so often in our community is like the college club mindset where nobody intends to make this a business and they're just like, sounds cool. Here's all my time and energy. And at some point there's an, there's an uneven exchange of value of time and of energy. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's hard to sustain. Right. Yeah. And, and so, mm -hmm. you know, I am unapologetically a for-profit media company who focuses on elevating our voice. How for-profit? Not very much right now, but it is still <laughs> the goal. And I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not shy away from, you know, asking for partnerships and asking for support because, you know, it, it takes, 
you know, resources. It mm-hmm. can't just be all be for volunteer work. But so that's the same mission that you guys have in, in terms of, you know, and then that's the work that you do at your agency during your day job as well. It's mm-hmm. really connecting, you know, community culture and commerce all together. That's what Next Shark does. That's what, you know, Benny's a, a great friend of mine. He's been on the show. And, and so I'm really excited to learn, you know, all that you're working on and all that you want to create because everything, everything is uphill from here for you. Not uphill, but upside here for you. <laughs> Maybe uphill too. But let, let's roll back the clock a little bit. Um, tell us about the Lou family. How did you guys find your way to America? And where did you guys move to and uh, share with us a little bit about the earlier days of the family journey here? Yeah, so it was the 90s when my dad decided to come to the U.S. to study. Um, So my parents, they're both from Beijing, China. Um, They met while after undergrad, uh, they worked together at a company for a little bit. Um, And then my dad decided he wanted to go to grad school after working for a bit and applied to U.S. schools and came over here. Um, So it's one of those kind of like coming through to study um, computer science, (laughs) very typical sort of major. Um, And after a few years of uh, being in grad school here, he brought my mom over who also got her master's here. Um, And so they both got married after coming to the U.S. And um, they've settled and been in Chicago, Illinois ever since. Um, Yeah, so it's just me and my parents who are in the U.S. I am first uh, generation born in the U.S., so second gen Asian American. And the rest of my extended family is all back in Beijing. Um, I used to visit Beijing quite a a bit <laughs> growing up. I actually spent the first three years of my life there. Um, my mom actually, um, since she's had me, she's worked at United Airlines. So we have those flight benefits, which is really nice. Uh, so we do visit back home quite often. Not right now. <laughs> Not right now, which is really <laughs> sad. Yeah. That's cool. Mm-hmm. I mean, so you, you've had a unique, you know, um, it, it sounds like you've had not a unique, but a, a different typical experience where your, your parents came here with the, the goal of education and mm-hmm. you were raised as a child of folks who were employed by the greater American ecosystem, if you will, not on, on the small business end. Um, what were some of your early role models, reaches, sort of dreams of what you, I mean, we know what you do now, right? You, you are in the media space, you love storytelling. What, what did you want to do as, as a younger Cynthia growing up in Chicagoland in, in, the, uh, in the 2000s? Oh my God, you grew up in the 2000s, but tell us about that. (laughs) Uh, Younger Cynthia had uh, a host of random ambitions. Um, When I was younger, I was obsessed with a series called Junie B. Jones. It was like this um, kind of series about this uh, kid who just goes to school and has random adventures with her friends. I don't know. I think the first time I ever told my parents like what I wanted to be growing up, the first time they asked me that, I told them I wanted to be a janitor Um, because Junie B. Jones had one book where she had the keys, the janitor keys to every single uh, room in the school. And I thought that was so cool. So I wanted to have that power, I guess. Um, And so that was my first, um, that was my first response. Um, but as I grew older, um, I think one thing that was like a main hobby of mine growing up was singing actually. So I was really into 
musicals actually growing up. My parents were obsessed with Phantom of the Opera. I don't know how many times I watched that opera uh, in person as a child. Not really an appropriate opera to watch as a child, but um, that really influenced me, I think. Um, So I did... um, a lot of chorus growing up. I sang in musicals and it made me want to possibly pursue music for a little bit. Uh, I had a band in high school um, and that was kind of like a dream that slowly as I got into high school died. <laughs> um, and I think that's this, that's one of the realities of like being an Asian child um, of your parents really trying to push you away from the creative arts, especially um, because it's a risky path, but also because there's not many Asians who do make it in the U.S. um, in the arts industry. So um, throughout high school, at least from freshman year to like beginning of senior year, I was sure I was going to go down the path of psychiatry, psychology. and literally thought I was going to go to med school. And so I was like, <laughs> I went to like future Doctors of America meetings. I, <laughs> I, I shadowed psychiatrists, um, watched surgeries. Um, that was how I spent my high school years until uh, my senior year in which there was this kind of moment of awakening um, very much towards how I'm perceived as an Asian person in the U.S. And it was actually after I auditioned for a musical. Um, They chose Miss Saigon for my senior year of high school. Um, And for those who don't know Miss Saigon as a musical, it's uh, this... It's this musical about the Vietnam War that was written by two white men. Um, It's also the musical that Lea Salonga um, kind of rose in her fame. That was her first role on Broadway. And that was her first time that she kind of entered like the U.S. market. Um, And that was a big deal for us because the lead is an Asian woman. Um, And so... I auditioned for the school musical and I really thought that I was going to get it for a second there. Uh, But they eventually gave that role to a white girl in our, uh, in our group. So it was kind of a shocking moment for me because our high school is at least like 25 to 30% Asian. You'd think that they'd be able to cast an Asian girl to play that role at the very least, because they had their selection, they had their pick, but they decided against it at the end of the day. Um, And it's already kind of, it's already very shocking that they chose Miss Saigon, which is kind of a racist musical in the first place. Um, But then to cast another white body onto a role that was written as an Asian lead, that was like another layer um, of shock on top of that. And I think the thing that broke me after that was not that I didn't get the role. It was that my dad had to turn to me and say, you know, this is why like I, I choose to like push you away from creative arts because no matter how good you are, no matter how hard you try, you will never be good enough. Um, And that was really hard because he was the one who actually told me that 
the high school chose Miss Saigon. He was the one who was really excited about it and told me to audition. He was the one who hired like a singing coach for me that summer to practice for auditions. And so he was the one who actually really pushed me towards that. And eventually having him have to say to me uh, that like, no matter how hard you try, it's not going to be enough. I think that was, that was a moment where I was like, hmm, like no father should ever have to say that to their daughter. Uh, so that actually is what eventually pushed me to choose film <laughs> and go into media because I think there is this lack of Asian writers in the space of Asians taking agency of their stories. Um, and yeah, that's that, I think that moment really changed a lot of like my perspective on things and also made me really come into my identity. I mean, in hindsight, it all makes sense. Yeah. Right. Like, mm -hmm. cause, cause I, you know, I'm, I'm sorry you had to go through that. And so many of us have, and it's actually extra offensive when, the, the actual role, right? Like it's, mm. it's, it's, I don't know, it's whitewashing at like a very literal sense. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we see it all the time and we make fun of, uh, I don't know, Scarlett Johansson, Emma Watson, Matt Damon for like all the stuff, but like mm -hmm. how many high school productions, how many <laughs> things, right? Mm -hmm. And then we think about, okay, who holds the power there? Who holds the privilege? Who is the faculty director? Who are the parents who are involved? Who are the principals and the administrators who either turn a blind eye or actually encourage the elevation of people who they maybe go to church with or belong in the same social circles and especially the arts. Um, I don't know when, I mean, folks are probably going to listen to this in February as well, but, you know, most recently it reminds me, uh, one of my uh, superhero uh, DEI people on LinkedIn shared the uh, Indianapolis Museum of Arts hosted a job posting and they used the phrase, we want somebody to broaden our audience to diversity while maintaining our core white audience. Mm, and, I saw that. And it's like, I mean, we all know that, like, you know, arts, museums, you know, stuff in that, you know, very mm -hmm. privileged, you know, arts world predominantly caters to very wealthy white people who I, I don't know if, if I had a billion dollars cutting a check to a museum, isn't my first priority while people are dying of hunger, but it is what it is. But like, it's just so blatant and, and we've all mm -hmm. experienced it, but you know, to be fair, that doesn't matter how our parents came here, whether it was for, you know, higher education or running away from atrocities and other stuff, survival, practicality, licensed degree jobs that had a, more, not a direct path, but, you know, just, I understand why our parents, and even as a parent myself, I don't know how I feel about it, but it's like, okay, I want the best for you. And financial security is a good thing to have. And so I understand where that comes from, but it all makes sense in your own journey, at least until where you are now of just having this need to, you know, want to uh, further amplify and own your own voice. Mm which doesn't explain why you went even to a more or a less diverse experience <laughs> as, as, as college came about and that choice. You went more north and you went less diverse, let's say. Mm -hmm. um, how did you end up at Wisconsin and Madison? And, and what were some of the things that you experienced there that led you to what you're doing now? Yeah. 
It's really funny because like after that happens, I don't know what came over me. Um, I literally thought to myself, this is like popping some sort of like Asian bubble for me because I didn't think that like, I don't think I've been so directly confronted about my Asian identity before. Um, and it made me want to go to a place where I know that I will be challenged with that. Um, I was like, I, I want to see what it's like outside of an area that's, that has a large Asian bubble or it has a large Asian population just to see what it's like. And so I had a choice between going to, uh, Illinois Champaign. So UIUC, which is like 50% Asian, uh, versus UW-Madison, which was 8% Asian. <laughs> and I remember like, I was so gunning towards going to UW-Madison to my dad. And he was like, why in the world do you want to go there? <laughs> like, I, I, I actually, I worked hard to try and get into the direct business program at UW-Madison because my dad said that he wouldn't let me go unless I got in direct. And um, it was like a small percentage of kids who got in directly into the business school. And so uh, after I got in, I was like, I'm going. I hadn't even like visited the school. I knew pretty much nothing about the school, but I just wanted to see what it was like. And I think at the end of the day, um, like I was absolutely racialized on campus. I got what I had expected, I think, in a lot of ways. Um, it was just like, especially being in the business school at Madison, um, that school is like probably even less Asian than the overall campus. Um, there were so many incidents um, from the very moment I stepped onto campus the first time I did. Um, one of the initial core um, things that happened was that they had a UW day, which was a welcoming kind of day for uh, students and they had a UW for students of color day. Um, and I think that set the tone for the rest of my four years there. Um, like was all that the, the colors? Yeah. For all colors. Essentially. <laughs> like their way, like I understand they were pretty much saying like, Oh, we wanted to create a safe space for students of color, but they decided to do that by segregating the two days and calling the white UW day just called UW day. And then the other day called UW for students of color day. I wasn't invited to UW day. Like the invitation was never in my mail. I only got invited to UWs for students of color day. Um, it was the same thing, except the only thing that was added was for the Students of Color Day, there was an added panel of uh, stu current UW students who talked about their experiences of racism on campus. Um, it almost felt like they were trying to like warn us from going to this school. Um, and I was like, wow, this is, this is really the reason why there aren't many people of color on this campus. Um, and that's how UW really addressed a lot of their race incidents throughout my four years there, just like trying to segregate it and calling it a safe space, but never really addressing the roots of the issue. I mean, I think you bring up a fascinating point, and I think we don't talk about it enough. In fact, I was just chatting with uh, with Don Lee, who works in the higher education space. She is currently at uh, De Anza College uh, up in the Bay. And, you know, she's leading a conversation. Um, it will have happened by the time folks listen to this. But it's just about, you know, what what is the 
you know, role and responsibility of student affairs and higher education professionals when it comes to protecting our voices and, and creating these spaces where people, students feel safe. You know, I was lucky enough to go to a school at USC that actually had a school funded uh, student services office for APA students. We had one mm -hmm. for uh, the black students. We had one for uh, Latinx students and we had, we didn't call it Latinx back then, but it was, um, and then we had APAS, which is uh, Asian Pacific American Student Services, whose exec director actually was our first guest on the show ever. And then he's going to come back to interview me for a hundred, which is, I'm, I'm excited to do. Full circle. <laughs> it, it, it's fascinating because those spaces, it's so, it's necessary, mm -hmm. but it has by design an alienating effect for people who maybe feel like they don't welcome, they're not welcome in those spaces because it draws a line at cultural identity and it also others out, right? So it's, it's I, I don't know how I feel. It's like having Asian ERGs. I'm all for it and I think you should fund it and it's awesome. But then at what point do we get the, the firing back from, you know, the, the white males in the room and saying like, how come we don't get any ERG? Where, you know, hmm. why, where are our voices being heard? And if people are getting extra funding to have speakers that resonate with their, you know, like, and, and so again, I mean, the, the, the firing back is no, you have the rest of the world as, as your oyster. And if you need like pro white voices, that's not who we want in the boardroom anyway. Mm -hmm. But still, it, it's really fascinating to hear your story, Cynthia, because where we go to school, because, you know, people don't necessarily, most students, I hope more do going forward. They don't use that part of their decision-making tree when they pick those schools to go to, either for undergrad, especially for undergrad mm -hmm. and for graduate school, right? It's yeah. generally the shiniest logo <laughs> the one that your mom knows mm -hmm. or the one that your mom's friends at church knows so they can go talk about it. Mm -hmm. But it does play into how we grow up and what we're encouraged to do and how we identify ourselves. Um, and, and so I hope that happens more. It's really, and then, you know, um, not, not to age or date you, but like that's not far ago that no. you had that experience. And I bet you it still happens today even after all that we've been through, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, and, and if people who are in the higher education space, whether you're a professor or administrator, you know, all the things that you do for your cultural audience has to be in addition to and not in lieu of, right? Mm -hmm. Having anything specific to first-gen students or any sort of marginalized group is a complementary service, not a replacement service. Every student has the right to participate in everything, but what we're trying to do is to not make things equal, but equitable, because mm -hmm. we have certain disadvantages that we have to face head on and to say, because my dad didn't go to, to the same school that I did because he wasn't born here and didn't belong to a fraternity because he still doesn't know what a fraternity is. <laughs> how do we make that a little bit more equal? And mm -hmm. why is, you know, and so I, in, in, in some way I'm, Knowing what you do now, I'm, I'm glad that, I'm uh, not glad, I, I think there is uh, respect and, and uh, gratitude for you having had those experiences, which then turned you into wanting to pursue some of those outlets in other areas. And so 
before you ended up at Admirasia, uh, you worked at three distinct media companies that uh, caters to three distinct key audiences. And I think for some of our uh, younger listeners or people who are um, in the in the know of digital media, uh, these names are household names, right? And so Next Shark, mm-hmm. we all know. Benny's been hustling for Next Shark for a long time, and we are so grateful for what they yeah, do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The skim, it's it's not, you know, it's more of a gender identity or gender community where it's the, you know, a place for, it's a media company for women mm-hmm. and a, a newsletter anchored media company for women. And then uh, Morning Brew, which is more generational divide where um, it's not even Gen Z because they're not that young, but, you know, sort of super young millennial, like 30 and under mm-hmm. bite-sized news now growing into a large, you know, just business news sort of empire. Most recently valued as a ridiculous number and cashed out for some other ridiculous number. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. what did, you know, share with us that and like why digital media um, overall and you, you've intentionally spent time in those three spaces that look, I'm sure, very different, mm. not only from a physical perspective in terms of what the newsrooms look like or just the culture and the ethos. Um, share with us what you learned about storytelling, you know, working at those places. Yeah. Um, to really dig into that, I think I'd have to start at the very first internship I had, which was actually at China Daily in Beijing. Um, that was an interesting internship, um, because I was a translator and editing, um, intern in the editorial, uh, English news departments, um, in their Beijing headquarters. And the sort of, the sort of like, uh, suppression of media is very real in the newsroom there. And I could feel it even as just an intern, um, of how articles are edited multiple times over. They're passed through this, like, little room of editors who we have no idea what they do in there. But once the articles go in there, they, like, come out kind of (laughs) different. So I think, like, that experience was uh, my first initial look into news media. Um, A very different way of how it works in China than how it does here. Um, But it's what intrigued me in the beginning. At first, I didn't think that that was what I was going to go into. I literally thought I wanted to go into just film and specifically like narrative film, not documentary film. Um, And so my initial first two years in college were really focused on that. And I had uh, wanted to specifically go to New York for an internship um, just to see what um, not only what the city was like, but also uh, what the indie film scene kind of looked like there. And my favorite one was a 24 at the time. Uh, so that was the film, that was the company that created the farewell. Um, and I just really wanted to intern for them because they were like young kind of millennial run indie film shop that's been doing well. They just like had moonlight that won an Oscar. Um, and so I did a few rounds of interviews with them and made it to the last round, but didn't get through. And so it led me to kind of look into the other news media um, orgs that were around. And that's when I came upon the skim. Um, And I recognized the name from a friend who had worked there before. And I kind of asked her about her experience. She was like a very, very early intern for the skim when Carly and Danielle were still working out of their apartment. So she was like running in and out of their apartment to kind of help out with random tasks. Um, And 
I applied and that was the first year that they had their internship program and still installed. Um, they didn't have one before. So that was, I was a paid media intern on the team. Um, and I think the environment of the skim, it was it was interesting. Like I really liked the fact that they were able to make news more accessible, um, especially um, focus on addressing um, issues that women really cared about. Um, but we have to understand the skim is very much directed towards white women and specifically upper middle class white women. Um, the logo was a this like skinny, tall girl with a string of pearls and holding this handbag. It was the most controversial logo for the longest time. And I'm so glad they finally did a rebrand on it. Um, but it was a major issue in the company that I don't think a lot of people talked about where the women where yes, 80% of the like of the people who work there were women, but also like 80% of the people who work there were like women of color. I mean, sorry, no, white women. And so women of color only made up a very small percentage um, of the people who were actually in the newsroom and um, chose the stories. Uh, I had a um, one of the writers on the team actually talked about like she wanted to create a Spanish version of the newsletter and she successfully like put out a beta version of it. Um, and for one reason or another, it didn't perform as well, which doesn't really surprise anyone. Their audience is mostly white women. So obviously, if they haven't ever reached out to that segment, it's not going to perform well in their first beta test. And they just scrapped it. Um, and I think that was something that um, kind of turned me off about um, just the skim in general. Um, and so I didn't go back to them. And I moved on. And that's when um, Next Shark actually approached me. Uh, Benny was the one who DM'd me on Instagram. I, uh, I heard about Next Shark. I read a few articles before, but I hadn't really given too much thought to it before. Um, and he reached out to me and he was like, hey, I saw you worked at the Skim. And uh, I don't know if you know this, but there are only two Asian people who have worked at the Skim before. <laughs> so uh, we're trying to build out a newsletter. And since you were at the Skim and their newsletter does so well, like, I was wondering if you could come onto our team and help us build our newsletter out for the Asian audience. And so that's how I joined Next Shark. Um, and I was on the team for about six months just working on this daily newsletter. It's kind of a crazy schedule. I... Uh, I convinced Benny that I needed the help of my roommate, who is um, a journalism major, um, and also now the co-founder of AZ Media with me, Tiffany. And the two of us would go to school during the day, and then we would come home at night and just write out a full newsletter um, for Next Shark every day. Um, and that's what I did for about six months until Facebook changed its algorithm and Next Shark lost a lot of viewers from that one algorithm change. And I think Benny pretty much was uh, really sad to see the newsletter have to go. Um, and uh, yeah, me and Tiffany had to be laid off because the funds just weren't really there anymore. Um, and it's very understandable. And that was kind of the reason why we had wanted a newsletter built out in the first place to try and diversify our revenue streams, diversify the places of where people were seeing Next Shark's content. Um, but this was before like 
the creation of really like subtle Asian traits. Like subtle Asian traits was created when I was working at Next Shark. Um, and so I think that was just, it was so new still. We didn't really know what we could do to leverage that network, what we could do to like create more Facebook groups. And now I feel like it's so normalized that you can have conversations, you can see kind of the content that Next Shark has created and they've really built this um, uh, household name for Asian Americans as a news media org. So very proud of Benny for that. Um, very excited to see them grow. So that was where I think I got a interest in specifically Asian American news, Asian American media. Um, but something that also bothered me while I was at Next Shark was that I felt that the stories that were reported um, were very much East Asian dominance. They felt very coastal dominance. Um, as an Asian person living in the Midwest, I felt like there were so many community stories that were just unheard or untold um, that I wish we could have done more of. Um, and so, yeah, I that's when I decided I would create a documentary series to document the experiences of Asian Americans in the Midwest. And um, I kind of just bootstrapped a few thousand dollars together to try and create this project and film it with a group of like 20 friends who were in film. Um, and we traveled to five different states in the Midwest, just filming people and their experiences um, and really trying to look for marginalized Asian American experiences. The Hmong community is so big in the Midwest, um, and they're often left out of Asian American narratives. And so uh, we focused on Laos, Hmong, Burmese American uh, refugee stories um, with a sprinkle of like the East Asians who grew up in Chicago Chinatown and like moved around in the Midwest. Um, and as we kind of like worked on that series, uh, that's when kind of like COVID hit. <laughs> and unfortunately, we had to stop production for that. And um, it's been kind of just in my drive for about a year now. Uh, but I really want to be able to finish that project after we are able to travel again. Um, but I needed a job <laughs> for the summer because my parents were so pushy about making sure that I had something to go to after I graduated in May. Um, and so I knew about Morning Brew and I wanted to go into podcasting because we had started to put together the beginnings of what is at the moment Asian American news now. Um, and I didn't really know how to go about it because I hadn't really worked on a podcast before. I was my background was in video. It was in documentary video. It was in screenwriting and film. And so going towards podcasting, I thought it wouldn't be too hard to move from video to podcast, um, but I still want to see how the process goes. And so Morning Brew had um, their business casual podcast looking to hire an intern. So I joined the team that summer and that was the summer that George Floyd was murdered. Um, and it was a very, uh, it was an interesting time at Morning Brew uh, because the team is very much white dominance. And as mentioned before, like the group of founders were like kind of white frat brothers from Michigan and the vibe of the company overall has that a bit. It's, um, it's friendly and I don't think there were like 
too many incidents where I felt like very, very uncomfortable. But I think when it came to addressing um, Black Lives Matter, I felt like there was this burden on me for some weird reason. The podcast team was only four people and I was uh, one of the only people of color. The other person of color was actually um, also Asian American. Um, and it was, it was difficult because I had to be the one who pitched the story as an intern and I had to be the one who pushed it really. Um, and I mean, the group and the team definitely wanted to address the stories, but I think because they're a white team for the most part, they weren't comfortable or didn't know the direction of how to address it. And so they were almost kind of looking for that way to do that. Um, and so they gave me a week's worth of episodes to produce. And so I produced um, the episodes on the incarceration business um, in the U.S. So uh, kind of interviewing um, one of the founders of the Bail Project um, and then another person who used to be incarcerated and then came out of the system um, to talk about what that was like additionally in terms of like how bail essentially, uh, how, how bail continues to be something that um, corporate companies profit off of. And uh, this is very much, I think, a business topic. To me, it was very much easily understood as a business topic, um, but it was the worst performing episode we'd ever done. Um, and I think that was something that was very sad to me, um, seeing that the business casual audience, we had a few very negative one-star reviews come in that week um, after I created those episodes um, because we had a lot of people pretty much saying, these are not business topics. This is not related um, to like anything to do with like stock market, anything to do with the normal sort of perceived white business topics. And this is pushing an agenda. Um, but That's the same audience that wrote me an email when I was um, student government president at Michigan in 2016, mm -hmm. when we had uh, Black Lives Matter, the election, Muslim ban. So I got emails from our, our lovely undergraduate students who literally is the same people. Mm -hmm. And they said, this is not your place to talk about politics. Yeah. And I said, actually it is. And, um, you know, I, I, man, like you shared on some things that I think we can talk about for hours on each, <laughs> mm -hmm. but th there's one, I, I think, you know, one thing that we talked about that I think is relevant as media operators now and the idea of, and we're gonna, and then for folks, um, we're going to get, I'm going to ask her some business questions. And so hope, hope you learned something. Uh, <laughs> the idea of owning your audience, right? Because mm -hmm. Next Shark was built on Facebook, right? It's got yeah. a great presence on Instagram now, but it was largely built on organic reach on Facebook. You talked about Salesian Traits. Uh, those guys from Melbourne are approaching 2 million people. Yeah. All the Asian groups, we're all friends, right? And, and we, we, we talk nerdy and we talk business all the time. What is, you know... I know what my answer is, but, you know, what is the best way to build a sustainable niche media business in, in your opinion? What platforms you, you've 
hit on, you know, you've worked in newsletter, you do podcasts, you've worked for podcasts, you are very familiar with all the different social media channels. Um, Clubhouse is all the rage now. And, you know, we've, we've talked quite a bit on that platform as well. If somebody were listening and they're listening because they want to learn from Cynthia, the founder of AZI, like what, what do you focus on? If you look for learning, you know, uh, based on everything that you learned so far? Yeah, I think something that like our team has thought a lot about is like the businesses that are very successful, just kind of very early in their time as a media company, often get it from VC funding. Um, and the thing is with that is that it almost always has to be directed towards a somewhat white audience, or it has to be very large enough that white people can profit off of it somehow. Um, and so when you think about that, how you raise money for a news media company, it's going to look different than how you raise money for a tech company or any other company, um, because it's not going to grow at the same rate, especially for one that focuses on doing community news, um, and specifically trying to help the community. Um, so I think something that our team had been really inspired by and look into all the time is Wear Your Voice magazine. They're a company um, also founded by this Asian American woman. Um, she pretty much um, created a magazine where really progressive um, women of color have a space to talk about um, politics and hard hitting politics that really examine sort of societal structures that oppress uh, people of color, LGBTQ people, just marginalized identities in general. Um, and it's a publication that most VCs would never fund because it calls people out all the time. Um, and they had struggled for a few years um, trying to like get funding. They were essentially um, just on Patreon trying to get um, donations from folks. Um, and they had this moment in 2020 where they were pretty much almost out of funds and they couldn't keep going. Um, and they had this call to action with their readers and said, and said, here's the situation. Like, if you want to continue seeing where your voice thrive, if you still think our platform has like power, um, please, please like donate to us, please show support. And they were flooded with support from the readers. And eventually that led to a couple of angel investors putting in um, a few a few like hundred thousands at least, maybe like a few mil um, in funding for them. And so they've been able to essentially show, hey, this is incredibly important to our community. And our community is the people who really want to see this work continue. And I think when it comes to niche sort of like community-based media companies, um, our product market fit really comes from whether people want to see that work continue. Um, and I think that's one of the things that NextShark has done well also of like, um, the community has been the one who kept this publication going. It's hard and it's not like the most profitable um, thing in the world, but oftentimes in kind of a white capitalist structure, that is the reality. Um, and so I think it does take time, I think, for um, 
news media companies for um, just media creatives, there is a bit of patience that has to come with that. Um, and it's also a bit of kind of a balance of whether you want to be, you want to lean into profiting um, versus kind of doing community work. And I think there is um, a bit of a balance of figuring out where you want to be in there. Um, yeah, that's for how we're thinking about it right now. Oh my goodness, India, we can talk about this for hours. I, I look, I, I think we need to fund it, right? Here, here's my my two ads to that, and and I appreciate you for using very direct and uh, easy, as tough as it may be. Uh, VCs like investing in things with very big, as they call it, TAM, total addressable market. Mm-hmm. 6% of a country is not a very large TAM for any investor. What they fail to realize is that my TAM is 4 billion people or whatever the subset of 4 billion Asians globally speak English enough to want to consume my content. And so mm-hmm. I welcome the rejections and sort of the ignoring of our voices because it's sort of like, let's play the long game and see who actually is, you know, like I laugh when people call Asians minorities. I'm like, really? Like Mm. you're looking at the wrong denominator, but that's your problem, not mine. And so where it comes to that is where, and I'm seeing some encouraging signs of, and I say this full, full disclosure, like I run a media company and I am looking for different ways to monetize. And so we can keep this ship going, but Mm -hmm. I also know that my stuff resonates. And so we don't support each other enough and I'm not going to, call people out individually, but the amount of people that want to amplify their voice and their brands using my platform, but won't ever bring up compensation or what can I do for you? And they just say, Hey, you have a podcast. Hey, you you have a large, like, can I come and talk about my stuff? And Mm -hmm. never really let alone offer that, but even respond kindly when I ask for, you know, can we work? Like when you say collaborate, like where, Where's my value exchange? And it's Mm -hmm. tough when you play in this community space. It's really difficult to bring up value exchange or compensation or supporting in a space where they go, you're elevating the community's voice. Thank you for doing such a great job. I really appreciate you. But that has to be tangible at some point. Like, Mm -hmm. I have no idea how Benny has kept Nectar going for many years. I really don't. Right. Because people want the free, but then the moment they ask for $10, they go, Oh, sorry. Mm-hmm. We have to support our own people. We have to support, like, again, if you want to support me, DM me. I'll, I'll send you a thing, right? Like, that's fine. Support Cynthia's work, right? Support Carl at Subtle Asian Networking, or formerly known as is rebranded, right? Like, there's mm-hmm. a team of 20 working on that, right? But when we talk to these folks offline, they get guilted from a certain part of the population to always keep it free because it's for mm-hmm. the community. And while mm-hmm. it's not an apples to apples, I always like to talk about Tyler Perry. Tyler Perry is a billionaire because he made black movies for black people, hiring black actors, hiring a black cast, and didn't really care what other people thought. He's not a perfect person. He's made his mistakes. Everybody knows about it. But at the end of the day, he made a lot of people wealthy, elevating their stories. And on mm-hmm. a recent interview that he did on LinkedIn, I think Gail King was interviewing him. And it's like, you have to support the crappy movies because that's how great actors get discovered. Because 
that's the whole point is that not that he was making crappy movies, but if you're such a perfectionist or such an elitist where I'm only going to watch Oscar worthy movies. Well, guess what? Justin Lin directed better luck tomorrow before he did fast and furious. That's a 20 year journey, right? Like we have to support Mm -hmm. student films. We have to support independent artists and, you know, we can't keep, you know, uh, sticking our noses in the air and saying like, I'm only going to support excellent projects. And that's where I think it's really important. I didn't want to make it about this, but like, it's something that I feel very passionate about that we have to support the people who are lifting up the community. If you're corporately employed, if you have a little coin, if you made a lot of money off of whatever coin of the day it is, or whatever it is, think about how you're going to use, because everybody has to participate in the game somehow. I understand fullheartedly that not everybody's going to quit their corporate jobs like I did and to go down this path a challenging and lonely path of creating and uplifting stories. Then help me do what I do so that you can benefit from it too. And and so, you know, I just, again, this is not a fundraising call, but I just want to remind people that support has to start within the community because the people outside of the community don't understand our struggles enough and don't value our stories enough to fund it. And mm-hmm. if we want to further amplify, if we want the next Minari, the next Parasite, the next Happy Cleaners to be made, Stop asking for the free promo, guys. Stop mm-hmm. asking for the free screening link. Go pay, right? Because you gladly mm-hmm. pay. Yo, like, I know where people go eat. I know what, you know, luxury items people want to buy for their people. Like, that's fine. I'm not shaming where you spend your money, but also spend your money within the community because it matters. And then one other thing I'll add about the media thing is you got to own your audience. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah. <laughs> if, if you rely on the reach of somebody else, which mm-hmm. is Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Clubhouse, yeah, name it all, LinkedIn, like, I, like I have like 7,500 people who follow me on LinkedIn, like, and I don't have 7,500 email addresses. Yeah. And so if enough people report me on LinkedIn, they might deem that I am not good for business and cut me out. And what happens to my megaphone? What happens to my stage? Gone. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. People's YouTube accounts, people's Instagram accounts have been disabled overnight without reason. And there's no way to contact them. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, th- there's a few of us in the community who've been very actively vocal about that. And so if you're starting a media company today, number one, before even before you sign up for anything, MailChimp, MailerLite, Clavio, SendinBlue, uh, any of them. Excel, sp- actually don't do Excel spreadsheet. It's illegal. Um, collect people's email addresses and their names. Um, If you're starting a Facebook group, put in the, you can do a member approval questionnaire where you can ask for questions, name, email, some other sort of buy-in question and start collecting it. Because I noticed even in the last week that our Asian podcast network groups reach went like one third. Hmm. Like I was posting the same type of content at the same time and like nobody was seeing it. Yeah. But guess what? I have everybody on email. So if I really wanted to, I can just email everybody instead. And I know that those get 40% open rates all the time. And so mm-hmm. I think we should have a separate conversation, maybe not on the Asian Americans because it's not the topic, but would love to, t- I, 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 mean, I, I actually have uh, suggested this to some of the other guys. It's very vulnerable because you're asking people to like talk very openly about their business. But mm-hmm. um, I think it'd be really dope and really encouraging if we can get some of the larger community, uh, uh, virtual community builders, um, you know, to come and talk and and share about how we're building and, you know, some of the things. Um, Yeah. 
because uh, I'm excited to see what you're building, right? So let, let's talk about that. Let's talk about AZI. What was the inspiration? Um, I've uh, full, full disclosure, I've been a guest on uh, at the moment. Really, really awesome formatting and just like really impressed with the work that you guys do. Super ambitious. You guys have a great team. Your website puts mine to shame. Um, what was the impetus? Because you're doing this in addition to your day job as, as with mm-hmm. your co-founders and other team members. Why, why the audience? Why the topic? And what is your goal with starting this? Yeah, I think I have to give a lot of credit to my team for putting AZ into the direction that we're going now too. Um, Because when we first started, it was really in about March. um, And it actually was a spinoff of my documentary series on Asian Americans in the Midwest. Um, It was called AP on AP, um, stood for Asian Perspectives on Asian Pacifics. Um, And it was really trying to get into this idea of like, let's talk about what Asians consider to be the Asian American narrative. Like, how do we talk within our community about um, the issues within this community? Um, what sort of divide still exists? And how do we how do we come to more empathy towards one another in general? Um, and so that's where it really began. And so AZ was known as AP on AP in the very beginning. And we had wanted to kind of just continue looking at um, Asian American marginalized stories and platforms, specifically those. And since I have a news media background, so does my co-founder, the two of us kind of recognized from our experiences working in new digital news media spaces that there is a rise in like explainer journalism work, um, explanatory journalism like Vox is one that is probably very popular and comes to mind. Um, but for Asian American issues, for Asian diaspora, it just, it just doesn't really exist. Um, it has, uh, I think for Asian American news media, it has been more specifically um, thinking about um, kind of feature stories of like specific Asian American experiences. Um, we have like smaller sub-segments of NBC and Huffington Post um, of like NBC Asian America who do like one story a day on reporting about the community. And then there's uh, companies like Next Shark who are um, very much like very timely news that reports on um, what's happening, but doesn't really do a breakdown explainer of why it's happening. So we really wanted to get into the why. um, And we wanted to take the time and take the conversations that we kept seeing on like Facebook groups and Facebook channels um, and put context to it and really try to um, help the community think about the current events and think about it in context of history, context of um, our identities. And so that was the spirit of AP on AP of AZ in the beginning. And we decided on a podcast because video was too hard to do and it was too expensive to do. Um, Podcasts just made a bit more sense. It still allowed us to go into that explanatory um, journalism space that we really wanted to go in. Um, And so that's the direction we went in. And so we created a beta, (laughs) created our first version of a prototype, and it was horrible as a team of five, we realized that there's no way this could could, could sustain um, with just a team of five people. Um, 
and there was it was just the content was lacking um and our team was not diverse enough of different asian american backgrounds still so we went out and found just five more people and doubled our team size um and slowly throughout these last like six months um starting from june july-ish um is when we started really prototyping with the full team of 10 um we created four different prototypes we had many multiple long talks about what the politics of az media is like what we believe in what our values are what kinds of story do we platform what kinds of people do we platform we created all these guidelines for ourselves and we're still creating more guidelines for ourselves um in how we navigate these stories um and making sure that our news media work isn't doing more harm to communities. We're not actually, that we're not kind of platforming the majority of Asian American stories. We're looking at how our way of storytelling um, is inclusive of everyone and doesn't do more harm to the marginalized. Uh, so that has been kind of the process of the last six months before we finally got to a prototype where we were like, I think we're ready. I think our process is um, already like efficient enough where we can do this at least on a biweekly basis right now um, and limit the number of hours that everyone on the team works per week so that there's no burnout. Um, and making sure that team recognizes that funding is going to come slow and it's going to be hard. <laughs> and so sustaining it is all about um, how much does this work really speak to you? How much, um, how are you balancing this with every other aspect of your life? Like making sure that this operation is sustainable um, and making sure that we're sticking to our mission values, we're sticking to um, our guidelines. And so that's been really the process of it so far. Um, and yeah, we're very excited to like have the podcast out in the world and we're seeing people really respond to it. And our main goal in the beginning is to just find a group of listeners who really, really love the content. We're not looking for a really large audience. We're looking for a really connected audience. We're looking for a passionate audience. Can you talk about how hard it is to be an inclusive Asian American media company, Cynthia? Because it's something that I've been struggling <laughs> with and I know all of our friends do. And me as a straight Asian or Korean American, East Asian dude with privilege and education. I sometimes get called out fairly and sometimes unfairly for dominating the Asian American narrative, right? But mm. we are 40 plus countries, hundreds of cultures defined by man-made borders, histories, voices, genders, religions. Mm -hmm. You take the combination thereof and it's almost infinite. Yeah. And let's not even get into, do our Western Asian brothers and sisters actually uh, identify and want to be Asian? Mm -hmm. But Israel, technically Asia, all the way there, right? So if mm -hmm. on a map or even, you know, um, Russia or, you know, uh, any, any of those countries, right? And so how are you guys approaching that? Because it almost, and I'm being very honest here, like it almost seems like a battle we can't win right? <laughs> you, you highlight a story and somebody says, what about me? What about this other person? And it's not, it's, it's not check the box. It's not bingo. It's not, um, any of these. And, and I, I you know, it, it's not, 
anything that comes from a mindset of scarcity, it's just all stories matter. Um, mm-hmm. For me personally, where I've sourced all of our guests by myself, you know, yeah, there is a bias to who my friends are and what circles and what, you know, in-person networks I belong to. I understand that I need to do better and I've pushed myself to do better. Um, but the, and, and so when people ask like, what is Asian America? Like we can't define it. Right. And so mm-hmm. when Renee made the documentary on PBS last year, it was five parts because we needed that much time, but it still wasn't exhaustive. Right. Mm-hmm. And and so, you know, how do you approach that? And, and what is your team's checks and balances on, you know, never really, I don't want to say enough, but like, where do you feel comfortable in knowing that you are doing your part to represent uh, our collective voice, but also knowing that we're never really going to please everybody and, and somebody's going to feel like their voice or their story isn't represented in what we define as Asian American media? Yeah, I think this is a conversation that is ongoing for our team. This is a recognition of like, Yes, this is something we have to look at for every single story that we do. And it's always going to be that way. Um, So like, in terms of like having a heavy definition, it's hard because a lot of it is really just like, every single story is different. And so we have to look at um, our guidelines of like, is this going to be hurting a specific community? um, If we specifically do this one story, like who are we benefiting? Who are we hurting for every story we do? And we have to look at it from that lens. Um, And so it does take us a little bit longer to be able to put things out. But I think um, for us, it's really important. Um, And so what we have been thinking about, like first is like we decide to go for um, the Asian American news media space first before we can talk about Asian diaspora. Um, But there is this recognition of a lot of Asian American experiences is heavily tied to the diaspora and what that experience is. Um, For example, we're doing a story on uh, the coup in Myanmar that we're currently working on right now. And it's so, so important to Burmese Americans. This moment is incredibly important uh, to that community, but to a lot of the East Asian community, they're dealing with this rise of um, attacks on elderly um, folks, on Asian Americans. And that has been the core center of a lot of the Asian American news media coverage right now. Um, and I think it is this recognition of like, um, there's different things, there are different moments that are important to different communities. Um, when we pitched the store, we had to decide between covering Myanmar or covering the Indian farmers protest. Um, and then <laughs> the entire anti-Asian hate crimes occurred and we we're like, oh my God, <laughs> there are so many things happening. Um, and what you prioritize really speaks about what your media company um, finds to be the most important conversation. Um, it is like, yes, that lack of resources m- pretty much means that we have to choose which one is most important. And as a company, our mission statement is to platform the most most marginalized voices. And so we have decided to go with the Myanmar coup at this moment. Um, And that is essentially how we're operating right now um, of there are important conversations and we can address them through social media as they occur. Um, But in terms of like where our priority is with the podcast, um, thinking about who, which organ, like which communities 
are getting the least amount of coverage in the larger news media spaces, even thinking about the Asian American news media spaces and trying to cover that is our goal right now. Um, and so that's kind of how we think about it. Um, it is, it's, it's difficult. Yes. But um, I think that's, that's essentially, that's our mission. We have to stick with it. I'm getting exhausted just hearing you talk about it because <laughs> we want to do it all, right? And, mm -hmm. you know, here here on our show, you know, I made a decision that at a very early point because I think everybody plays a different role that we weren't necessarily going to go into current event types of commentary. One, from an evergreen perspective, we want these to last longer, but also that's a battle I can't win. I'm not equipped mm -hmm. to, I'm not funded to, I don't have the training and, and all that. And then, you know, and I, for, for you and for your team, uh, I hope you're listening because Cynthia's on here. Don't ever feel like that you're not doing enough. Your coverage of what's going on in Myanmar is one additional coverage. And it's not mm -hmm. the lack of coverage on other topics because guess what? AZ didn't exist a month ago. So if we're talking about it, it's an additional source and you're talking to a different audience. And so, you know, be proud of that. And, you know, uh, and, and so let, let's, you know, wrap up and sort of end on this, which I think is critically important to your legacy, which is how do people help? So we, we talked earlier about, you know, put money in our pockets in one way, shape or form, right? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, especially for, and I feel very passionate about this. Like if, if you're a direct to consumer company and you want us to help you make more money and your initial email doesn't include, we'd love to send you something so you can try it before you use your platform to tell mm -hmm. other people how great our product is like, like you might want to go take a marketing class and I'm happy to like share, right? Like, because, mm -hmm. you know, we want to help. I want to see everybody win, right? I want yeah. Asian American media companies to win. I want all my friends to make a lot of money. And because I know that when our community makes money, we're going to put it right back into our community. Mm -hmm. I don't know Jeff Bezos is going to do the same. Actually, I know a fact he's not going to do the same, right? Mm -hmm. He's not going to go eat dinner at the local Thai joint today, right? We are. And so how do we keep you and your, key, and your team sustained and, you know, fed in the literal sense and in the, you know, in, in the metaphorical sense to keep you guys engaged and, you know, uh, excited to continue to do what you do. How, how are you, what is the sustainable business model for AZI? Is it venture? Is it Patreon on steroids? Is it swag? Like, how do we help? How do the listeners help uh, make AZI a thing that's going to be around for years and years and years. Yeah, I think for us, we're thinking about our monetization strategy as like um, a ladder <laughs> in some ways. Um, and so we're starting with really our coffee. So if you want to donate um, as little as a cup of coffee, that always helps. Um, right now, those funds are going directly into um, our kind of um, operation costs. So uh, making sure that we have our Zoom account up and our drive accounts, Slack, um, the things that make up the company <laughs> and keep it running pretty much is our main focus right now. That stuff um, adds up. It does. It really does. Um, and we're looking to release like a bit of like merch in some way to kind of benefit the community. We're thinking about doing actually, um, oh, if I share this idea, but <laughs> um, possibly an Asian American um, like planner, like a year long planner that has um, specific dates for like uh, events um, in Asian American history that to celebrate since quotes from Asian American activists and um, kind of resources to like support the community. And so that's something that we're looking to build in the next year for the 
for 2022. Um, but having something like that and those proceeds would go into our work and kind of funding our journalists um, and telling these stories. Um, and then we're going to look into angel investments, looking into journalism grants, uh, specifically grants that support um, local journalism efforts and then like uh, marginalized um, stories. And so that's where we're headed first. And we're hoping that if we get angel investors too, that it won't be too high in equity that we have to give out. But um, that's uh, a conversation we'll have when we get there. Um, All right. Listen, nobody yeah. steal the planner idea. And two, um, <laughs> Angelia, if you're listening, hi. If you know Angelia, please let her know that Cynthia would like to work together with Passion Planner on something that means so much to us. And I think that'd be that's really amazing. cool. Because she's yeah. got the, you know, she's got the infrastructure and she cares about the community. I'm not telling how to people to run their business, but why not? That'd be dope. I, I think that that sort of collaboration would be really, really meaningful and obviously, you know, amplifying all the work that we do. But that's really cool because there are dates in American dates in Asian American history that we're never going to learn about anywhere else. Mm -hmm. And we don't need another generally white male audience motivational journal. There's 50 of them at Barnes and Noble. <laughs> And so I think that's dope. I, I'd get one um, and, you know, make one for the kids because I think they need to be reminded too. Right. And so yeah. awesome. And if you, you know, this was not an infomercial for how do we fund AZI, but if we don't, <laughs> but if we don't fund AZI, it's not going to be around. Right. Because hmm. I'm, I'm coming up on a year of doing this. And so I've had a lot of conversation. I have a lot of thought, And, you know, I don't know if it's because we are generally conditioned not to ask for help. And I don't know if, you know, what the perception is of how all of this operates. But, you know, I've become more comfortable in just sharing with people that this thing needs support. And, oh, yeah. mm -hmm. you know, you know, that Instagram thing is like, you know, what doesn't cost money to support your friend's business, a like and a share and a mention. <laughs> but that also doesn't bring in any revenue either. Yeah. And so, <laughs> you know, so I, I hope to see it. And I know that there are amongst our community, you know, venture capitalists and funders and other people who measure ROI, not just by financial, but by community impact. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, even uh, my friend is, you know, there are specifically Asian American focused venture capital firms now, yeah. you know, are they, are, are they playing upon what's popular or do they really care? I don't know. We'll see. Everybody's wired a little bit differently, but there are also a lot of very successful people who've done well for themselves in business who are now turning to the legacy side of their chapter and saying, how do we fund? I don't care to make my money back, but I want to support other people who will take, you know, carry the torch. And so yeah. if you are one of these people, please contact Cynthia <laughs> and, you know, contact the other people, right? Because, you know, no money, no mission. And, you know, we're not, we're not trying to, you know, anyway, I, I think we all need a little bit of support. And so I, I am very, and, and so if folks have followed me for a little bit, or at least in our Asian podcast network, like um, I've been very extra vocal and very extra supportive of what Cynthia's built. Because my goal in starting the years, the Americans, which led into just like media, was really to help other people get their stories out. And not taking credit for any of it, because Cynthia has the resume and the experience to do it. But it may not be Cynthia. It actually might be somebody younger who listens to Cynthia and then creates, mm -hmm. you know, Asian vice. I have no idea. Right. <laughs> but mm -hmm. we have to do our part and it's not a competition, right? Like 
I, I, I say this all the time and you were like, you took me up on it. It's like, yo, if you want to start another Asian American podcast, I'll be your first guest. Just start one. Right. Yeah, Cause I don't see it as a competition. Like the more we do, the better. Yeah. And it's not about silencing anything else that's out there either. And so mm-hmm. we didn't even get to talk about your work or, you know, work, work at the agency or, or some of the fun things that you're doing on the side. So you'll definitely have to come back and share a little bit more at a different time. <laughs> Happy to. But, but let's leave with this. You, you've been in this space for a long time. You care about our community. And so um, from, from all that you've experienced and learned, um, would love for you to help us close out the show uh, by speaking out a letter to our community and, and share what's been on your mind of inspiration or reflection or just anything and complete the letter, dear Asian Americans. Dear Asian Americans, remember that you can take back your own narratives and remembering that taking back your own narratives also means that you don't have to put down another narrative to do so. Um, Remember that as you go onto your journey of self-identity and self-discovery, Remember to look at those that um, still need help to continue down their journeys. And so, um, yeah, (laughs) I'm not very good at this, unfortunately, but I hope that was, I hope that was good. That was awesome. But I think more than what you shared, I think you live your mission through the work that you're doing, elevating our voices. And, And I am so passionate about supporting you and a lot of our younger brothers and sisters who are early because it took me 10 plus years of working in corporate America, of staying silent, of laughing at the racist jokes, of not standing up for my, not only for myself, but other people who are getting harmed and joked about because what was I afraid to lose? A job, a Mm -hmm. paycheck, my pride, my friends, the respect, quote unquote, of other people in the room. I have no idea. But what I know this is true. I've been a lot, I've been very vocal on LinkedIn as of this week and the messages that I get that say, because you said it, it's empowered me to have conversations in the office that you share what I can't because I have an employer and I can't post those things. That's the gold. And so for you to have found that voice early on before it took me 15 years to do so, and then to bring on a group of friends to do the same and to do the work authentically at places that allow you to thrive, that's so important. So, so, so important. And so that's what gets me excited. And then that's what I'm hopeful for. And so keep on doing what you're doing. Uh, It's a lot of work. And I think you're insane for the format you guys have chosen, um, (laughs) to be honest with you. Uh, Mm -hmm. Because narrative news reporting globally, it's insane. But, you know, insane changes the world. And so, yep. yep, go, go change the world and we'll see you soon. And I highly, highly encourage everybody to stop listening to this podcast right now. Jump on over at the moment and subscribe to that podcast. It's really good stuff. And so Cynthia, thank you for what you do. Thank you for creating voices for us, uh, both in your day job and in your side gig. And uh, yeah, continue telling our story. And I really, really appreciate you spending a little bit of your time with us today. Yeah, thank you so much, Jerry, for having me on and for paving the way. No, I didn't do anything. I just moved some cars (laughs) out of the way. All right. Bye, everybody. Thank you.